morning, everybody. My name is Will Bausch, um, and I'm one of the most awkward people at Mercy Hill, and I'm about to preach a sermon called How Not to Be Awkward, so this should be interesting. Uh, before I bring God's Word to you, um, if you want to get your Bibles ready, we're going to be in Job chapters 18 to 19. Uh, but first, before we dive into this portion of Scripture, I'd like to pray together. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to, to come together under your word and see the glory that is you through what you have revealed to us through Holy Scripture. Lord, help us to see what you would have us see. Help me to say what you would have me say. And I pray, Lord, there would be nothing else but you glorified and your son Jesus lifted up for sinners. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. In my new adventures in teacher side hustles, I have become a driving instructor. When I've told people that I've taken this part-time job, I've had them tell me things like, I'll be praying for you, in the kind of tone that you would say to someone who has a terminal illness. People have promised me, half-jokingly, I'll take care of your family when you're gone. It's funny. However, the response I most often get is someone telling the story of either the awkward experience they had learning to drive or the awkward experience of teaching one of their own kids to drive. I think teaching driving for parents and their kids is especially awkward because neither teacher nor student knows what he is doing. Teaching something complicated, especially something you've done now almost instinctively for 25 or more years, depending on who you are, is different from being able to just do it yourself. Turning correctly, slowing down into the turn, not too fast, not too slow, getting the angle right, speeding back up, or merging out of the highway, taking the ramp at the correct speed, speeding up while you're looking at your blind spot and you're looking over your shoulder somewhere to plug yourself in, and then speeding up and plugging yourself in. It's a set of steps that not only needs to be explained in the correct order, but also needs to be explained in a way that's understandable to that particular learner. And it needs to be acted upon correctly and immediately. Some parents are actually suited temper temperamentally to being a teacher, and this helps them teach driving. But really, anyone can teach a skill if they understand it and have a method for teaching it and implement it in a way that that particular learner can understand. However, when they don't, you can see the consequences. I'm sure many of you might have the memory of being yelled at as a teenager by your mom or dad when you were first learning to drive, or yelling at your own teen while teaching her how to drive. I'm sure you know that yelling and other ways that we express frustration or anxiety are probably not the best teaching methods. These kinds of responses are signs of desperation, actually. You might be an excellent driver yourself, and you thought this is going to be a piece of cake. You might know the rules of the road, and you might even have a perfect driving record. However, when you sit in the passenger seat, and you try to help someone learn how to do it, who doesn't even know that she shouldn't use her left foot on the brake, you find out you don't know as much as you think you do. 
Having this kind of epiphany can be awkward, and it can be uncomfortable for teacher and student, especially if you're headed down breakneck road at 45 miles an hour when you realize it. Our text today features an interaction between a teacher and a student that I think is similar to this situation. Bill Dad is the well-meaning but unqualified parent who has some knowledge, but what has worked for him so far on the road is either partially incorrect, inadequate, or he explains it in an unhelpful, incomplete, or perhaps even dangerous way to his student Job. Job is suffering with a capital S. As you've heard in the previous weeks of reading this sermon, we've heard an awful, or hearing these sermons, you've heard an awful lot about Job's suffering. He's lost his possessions and much of his family. He's been abandoned and he's been insulted by everyone else, including his own wife. His physical body has endured all sorts of torture that few have experienced. Entering into an understanding someone else's suffering, and especially attempting to counsel someone in his suffering, like, like Job, is like, in some ways it's like teaching a teen to drive. It's inherently awkward. Few really want to do it. And if they're unqualified or if they approach it in an unhelpful way, it can lead to disaster. Hopefully through today's text, Job 18 and 19, Scripture is going to help us understand how not to be awkward when we attempt to counsel someone who's suffering. William Bridge, the author of A Lifting Up for the Downcast, which is one of my favorite books. Um, it's a book I highly recommend if someone you know is going through a time of great suffering. And if you want to borrow my book, let me know. Um, he wrote that affliction is our free school where God teaches his children and teaches them how to write that is how to view their sins and their graces. And Job has been to school. He has a degree in suffering. In this way, he's more qualified to teach than his supposed teacher, Bildad. Through Job's response to Bildad's counsel, Job attempts to teach Bildad, the supposed teacher, how he himself needs to be taught. And through this, we can identify five helpful tips that we can apply when we end up in the awkward situation of trying to counsel someone who's suffering. But first, we need to observe how Bildad attempts to counsel Job in the midst of his suffering. Um, so if you could turn to Job 18 with me. Uh, to put it into context, this chapter comes following Job's response to another counselor who has attempted to giving him counsel. Um, and that's Eliphaz. So Job 18, we're going to read the entire chapter. <clears throat> then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you hunt for words? Consider, and then we'll speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in your anger. Shall the earth be forsaken for you, or the rock be removed out of its place? Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. His strong steps are shortened, and his own schemes throw him down. 
For he's cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare lays hold of him. A rope is hidden for him in the ground. A trap for him in the path. Terrors frighten him on every side and chase him at his heels. His strength is famished and calamity is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the parts of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. He is torn from the tent in which he trusted and is brought to the king of terrors. In his tent dwells that which is none of his. Sulfur is scattered over his habitation. His roots dry up beneath and his branches wither above. His memory perishes from the earth and he has no name in the street. He's thrust from light into darkness and driven out of the world. He has no posterity or progeny among his people and no survivor where he used to live. They of the west are appalled at his day and horror seizes them in the east. Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous and such is the place of him who knows not God. This is God's word. Bildad's interaction with Job here is revealing. He starts by focusing on how Job's suffering affects himself and his friends. This is sadly often the case when we interact with those who are suffering, especially when they are being difficult. We first think about ourselves. Look at 18.3. When Bildad asks a couple of rhetorical questions, why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? This is a poetic way to ask Why am I wasting my time trying to help you? Do you think I'm stupid? When you read the responses of Job's friends to his suffering, you'll see this self-centered reaction several times. Frustration and annoyance at Job's situation and and his response to their obviously brilliant counsel. You think you're suffering, Bildad seems to be saying. What about us? We have to put up with you and your complaints. Bildad then goes into an irritated and thinly veiled indirect critique of Job as he describes the fate of the wicked. In verse 6, he describes how the light is dark in the wicked's tent and his lamp above him is put out. Verse 12, the strength of the wicked is famished and calamity is ready for his stumbling. And then the fatal wound, verse 21 when he implies that Job's suffering is a sign of his ultimate alienation from the Almighty. Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous, such is the place of him who knows not God. Now, as my brother Adam discussed last week, Bildad's theology here is not incorrect. In many places in the Bible, like Proverbs 14.11, for instance, we're told directly things like, the house of the wicked will be destroyed but the tent of the upright will flourish. This is also confirmed by biblical history. Think about the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the plagues, etc., etc., so on. There's many examples of God punishing the wicked. However, we'll now learn through Job's response that Bildad's diagnosis of his problem, really his accusations against Job, his friend, is incomplete, it's incorrect, and it's insensitive. In fact, the student Job will become the teacher, instructing Bildad and the other counselors, and I think us, in how to relate to someone 
like Job, who is going through unimaginable suffering. Let's read verses 1 through 6 of Job's response in chapter 19. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me into pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Here we can learn Job's first lesson in how to help those who are suffering. Be trustworthy instead of setting traps for the sufferer. Job feels condemned by his friend. In fact, Bildad has magnified his suffering rather than eased it. Job is right that a person who purports to help you in your suffering, suffering yet condemns you has set a trap for you. Taking the sufferer's disgrace and turning it into an argument to attack the sufferer. The sense of betrayal here is palpable. Job trusts Bildad, and Bildad uses Job's vulnerability to entrap and further wound him. According to Job, what the suffering needs is for the counselor to not use his suffering as an opportunity to wound him even further, even if he thinks there's a good reason to do so. Bildad's counsel is breaking Job into pieces rather than helping him be put back together. In Matthew 5, 4, Jesus tells us, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. But instead of comfort, Bildad and the other counselors have used Job's words of mourning to create further discomfort. In Romans 12, 15, Paul tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. But instead of solidarity alongside Job, Mourning with him for the obviously awful events that have transpired. Job points out that the counselors have taken Job's trust in them as he's revealed his innermost fears, doubts, and pain and have violated it by acting in the place of God and throwing accusations at him. In 19.4, Job even admits their accusations may be correct. But Job points out that it's not their place but rather God's to determine whether Job's own sin is responsible. Someone who's suffering may choose to open up to you. If he does, he is trusting you with his words. These words expose a vulnerability. Like a missing shingle on a roof, his words expose an area of weakness that could be repaired by a good friend with the knowledge of how to seal up the wound before the next storm comes. What kind of friend instead aims a hose at that spot? No friend at all. In verses 7 through 12 of Job 19, we can get an idea of just how desperate Job feels. He wishes for his friend and counselor, Bildad, to understand that he's at the end of his rope, that one more thing might push him over the edge. Behold, I cry out, Violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there's no justice. He has walled up my way, 
so that I cannot pass. And he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone, and my hope has he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They've cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. This is where we can learn, I think, the second lesson that Job wishes the counselor to apply when trying to relate to the suffering. Consider not merely what you say, but how it makes the sufferer feel from his perspective. How much more trapped and attacked can I possibly feel? Job seems to be asking in this section. Behold! I teach Shakespeare, and when I teach Shakespeare, one of the first words I teach them is mark. And whenever a character says that, they're saying, look, listen, notice. Sort of what behold means, the same thing. Notice this. If only Bildad would have read the situation and considered that Job is saturated with condemnation already. He might have been merciful enough to suffer alongside Job rather than align against him. Look at the verbs Job uses to describe how he feels in response to the, from his perspective, inexplicable treatment at the hands of God. Remember, there's a lot of dramatic irony in Job. Like, Job did not have access to the first couple chapters of Job. He doesn't know why this is happening like we do. So it's his perspective that this is inexplicable. He feels walled up, stripped. God breaks him down. God's wrath is kindled. He feels like an adversary of God, as if he were being attacked by an entire army. The book of James is one place in Scripture that describes the difficulty in using words in a righteous manner rather than a harmful one. And when we're talking to someone who suffers, our words are of paramount importance. In chapter 3, James even goes so far as to say that no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Bildad's words have felt to Job like a curse. Bildad has got a script, and he's going to stick to that script. Regardless of the effect his words have in contributing to Job's sense of claustrophobia and abandonment. You know, sometimes you don't need to say anything to someone who is suffering. Um, You know, as a teacher, I've had many, many students who have lost family members people whose parents have died in the middle of the year, like these horrible things that no teenager you, you want to go through and they go through it. And, um, or sometimes they're going to a funeral. And when the couple times I've counseled them in, in going to a funeral or something like this, the advice I always give them is don't say anything. Like every single time I've stood in that line and there's been that person there and you have to say something, I've almost always regretted what I said. Except for I love you, Jesus loves you, I'm sorry. There are times when it's good to say less. Sometimes it's good to be completely silent. In fact, saying something, although correct, may make matters worse because the sufferer in his desperate state may not be able to think rationally or not hear you as you've intended. In chapter 2, we learn that Bildad and the other counselors sat with Job on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. 
for they saw that his suffering was very great. Perhaps Bildad and the other counselors would have better served their friend if they kept up the silence for a much longer time than seven days, rather than speak without considering Job's emotional and mental state. These troops Job mentions in verse 12, where it says, His troops come on together. They've cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent, are at least partially made up of Job's friends and family. I think including Bildad and the other counselors, as we see in verses 13 to 20 of chapter 19. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives no answer. I must plead with him for my mouth, for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I'm a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I've escaped by the skin of my teeth. From this passage, I believe we can discover a third tip of how to interact with those who are suffering. Stand with the sufferer instead of piling on. I'm sure some of the descriptions here are literal, considering Job's physical suffering, like my bones stick to my skin. He probably felt like they did. But some, I believe, are metaphorical, like my breath is strange to my wife. And the metaphorical wounds or difficulties sound even more painful than his physical wounds to me. Look at the litany of betrayals. Brothers, relatives, close friends, guests, maidservants, servants, wife, young children, and now Bildad. I've noticed a phenomenon that is interesting when someone is suffering some overwhelmingly awful experience. Terminal cancer, a child's death, etc., Some people avoid them altogether. Perhaps they feel they'll say the wrong thing. Perhaps they don't want to feel bad themselves. Perhaps they think tragedy is catching. Job seems to be begging for a different kind of treatment than this from Bildad. Sympathy rather than antipathy. Identification rather than alienation. Job complains that the response to him has been universal. From strangers to his wife to Bildad, they've despised, forgotten, abhorred him. They've failed him. When dealing with the suffering, it's important to realize that you may be alone in your response to the sufferer, especially if he seems to deserve it. If you choose to love the sufferer, instead of abandoning or condemning them. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 is helpful in describing how this love might look. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
Notice especially the frequency of the word all in verse 8. It bears all things, endures all things. A very long time ago, I took a class um, with my former pastor, uh, John Quay, called Grasping God's Word. And I don't remember very much from that class, but I'll tell you the one thing that always sticks with me is all means all. He said that a lot. All means all. All means all. All. Endures all things. Has Bildad born and endured all things in response to Job? Or has he instead joined the troops aligned against him in doing the opposite? What might he and the others have done instead? You're probably wondering. Well, Job is pretty direct in describing what he would have preferred in the next two verses. Verses 21 to 22. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Here Job pleads for Bildad and the other counselors to do a fourth thing in response to his suffering. Don't worry about God's work. Focus on your own work, showing mercy. Job compares Bildad to God to demonstrate to Bildad that his words are not only harmful, but are evidence that he's taking on a role that belongs to God alone, judge. Regardless of why Job is enduring his suffering, God has touched him. Why do his friends think it appropriate to touch him as well in the same way? Instead, they should have mercy on him. This is, of course, what the suffering need. Mercy. Job says it twice, as if to emphasize the importance of this step. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Then, as if to further point out the betrayal he feels, he calls Bildad and the others friends, as if to imply that this is what they'd do if they really were worthy of that name. In Matthew 9, Jesus responded to the Pharisees, the supposed religious leaders' criticism for his eating with the castouts of society, the tax collectors and the sinners, with this direction. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Job is saying something similar to Bildad. You, the teacher, need to go back to school and you need to learn mercy. Brothers, sisters, when relating to the suffering, mercy is what you should study above all. And the best way to learn this was from the best teacher of all, Jesus Christ. Now this last point about Jesus Christ brings us to the fifth and final plea of Job to those who are trying to relate to the suffering. Point the sufferer to his Redeemer. Read verses 23 to 29 with me. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how will will we pursue him? And 
the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there's a judgment. Job is longing for a redeemer, someone to purchase him out of a debt of sin and judgment that he could never repay. He knows that his situation is hopeless if this life is the whole story. You know, his children died. You can't bring them back, for example. However, Job knows the character of God and that eventually, after death, he will find relief from suffering that he's endured through the redemptive work of God. Why couldn't Bildad and his other friends share this hope of redemption with him instead of adding to his suffering in all the ways I've just described? Well, the only answer I can think of is perhaps they don't believe it themselves. Look at the warning Job gives Bildad in verses 28 to 29. If you say, how we will pursue him, and the root of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there's a judgment. By their accusations and their certifying of Job's suffering as deserved, they've opened themselves up to the very same judgment. They, therefore, must need a redeemer as much as he did. See, one amazing thing is that the one who belongs to the Redeemer has a different relationship with judgment. I actually want to read a passage that describes how this works from, from this book, A Lifting Up for the Downcast. The truth is, the day of affliction and tribulation is a godly man's day of judgment. It is his only judgment day. He shall never be judged again, so as to be condemned at the day of judgment. When we are judged, says the apostle, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. And when the godly man's affliction day comes, he may say, now is my judgment day and I shall never be judged again. Why therefore should he be discouraged, whatever his afflictions be? As we close, consider the application of this fifth and final way to relate to those who are suffering. For without it, the other four ways, being trustworthy and not setting traps, considering how what you say is perceived by the sufferer, standing with the sufferer and not piling on, and finally showing mercy to the sufferer, these four things are impossible to do consistently because we are sinful and ultimately selfish unless we know the Redeemer. Without the belief that we need a Redeemer as much as the sufferer, we will not be equipped when faced with someone who is undergoing the trial of his life, especially when the person seems to deserve it. Turn to Luke 7.36 with me. I'll give you a second to do that. Luke 7.36. And notice how experiencing redemption the forgiveness of sins and the rescue eternally from their consequences, their just consequences, you, you deserve those consequences, can affect someone's treatment of others. Luke seven thirty six. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, 
And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee had invited him, who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I plead with you, Christian, to consider the gospel for yourself first before you try to help the one who is suffering. Do you believe that your Redeemer lives? And that because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, you will see God for yourself. Then good, go out and love those who suffer. If you don't, then look to Jesus. Be the one who is forgiven much, so you might love much. Search the scriptures and pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal the reality of your salvation to you, despite all you have done and all that you failed to do. And then repent, turn from your sin, and trust Jesus, your Redeemer. And then feast on his body and blood in the supper, and know that the reality of the sacrament is that it's unaffected by how good or bad you've been in reality, points to a historical fact that's efficacious for you today. Your Redeemer lives. Then you'll be truly ready to relate to those who, like Job, are called in this life to suffer greatly. You'll feel confident as you sit in the passenger seat while someone else drives down the highway of suffering that you'll be able to speak to him in a way that will teach him how to find his way home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a God who forgives sinners. Lord, our sin may cause suffering. We may deserve what we get in this life. However, Lord, we do not deserve what we get in the next, but we get it anyway. Help us, Lord, to have a renewed faith in the hope to come in your Son, Jesus Christ, that our sins are forgiven and that the suffering now 
has no comparison to the glory that's to come. Lord, and then help us. Help us to share that hope of the gospel with those who are suffering through how we speak to them, through what we say and don't say, through the risks we take to maybe look stupid or foolish because we don't give them what we think they deserve. Help us to have mercy. Help us to point them to your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House, located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.